don't spend any money unless it's on product development. Be as scrappy as you can. If you don't have to buy desks for your office and you can get some hand-me-downs from the company that's going out of business down the street or, because that's, that's what we did. We found desks outside and they didn't match at first, but it didn't really matter. Stay in your apartment until you are busting at the seams. Just be as scrappy as you can in every way. I am um, not a very good sketcher, but I used to sketch our line sheets at Kate Spade because we didn't want to pay an artist to do it for us. And we just, we did everything ourselves. It's also, it's a good way to learn about your business. If you have to learn how to do everything, you know how to do everything. And you know what skills, once you hire somebody, they will need to do that job. This is Get Shit Done, a podcast that dives into how women entrepreneurs are gaining traction and growing companies that scale generational impact. Each episode is real talk from women founders who have successfully scaled companies. You'll learn what they did to grow, how they did it, and the tools they used to get it done so you can too. To get access to more episodes of Get Shit Done, along with free traction tools, head on over to shegetshitdone.com. Welcome back to the Get Shit Done podcast, friend. I'm your host, Alex Batdorf, a.k.a. Chief Get Shit Done Officer. Today, my guest is my girl, Elise Ahrens, founder of Francis Valentine and co-founder of Kate Spade. Yep, play that back. If you want to talk about learning from women who get shit done, you are in the right place, honey. Today, you're going to learn about Elise's journey to co-founding and selling Kate Spade. But more importantly, you're going to learn about her growth journey to scaling Francis Valentine. When Kate Spade sold in 2006, Elise found herself wanting to focus on her family, but also missing building a business. After 10 years, she got the gang back together again. And when I say gang, I mean Elise, Kate Spade, and Andy Spade. Gang, gang. And they wanted to launch Frances Valentine, now a multi-million dollar fashion brand that is profitable. Y'all, I stress profitability so much in this episode because fashion businesses can be capital intensive and it takes a while to get to profitability. So Elise is going to break down how she and her team made it happen through e-commerce, retail locations, and wholesale partnerships. I know a lot of you have a lot of questions about wholesale partnerships. And she also walks you through how they approach each of these channels in a super frugal way. You may be thinking, well, Elise got coins. No, honey, she does not play around with coins and she is not out here just spending to spend. Y'all are going to want to get out pen and paper because not only is Francis Valentine profitable, but they're growing in an uncertain economic environment, which should give us all a bit of optimism. So get ready to catch these gems. I just want to say thank you to the folks who have rated and reviewed this podcast. It truly helps us in serving our community. And if you haven't yet, this is your chance. If you find these weekly traction briefings helpful, it would really help us if you take 10 seconds to tell the world why. And if you're looking for everyday support in your scaling journey, head on over to shegetshitdone.com slash membership, where you can learn about how we're helping women entrepreneurs grow game-changing businesses that disrupt systems of survival. Get unstuck and get the support you deserve and scaling your business. And without further ado, Queen Elise Ahrens. 
Elise, welcome to Get Shit Done. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. She, in true fashion, um, fashion, she has the, all these wonderful patterns behind her. Um, I, I miss kind of that vibe because I was in fashion for like years um, with my first two companies. And just seeing all the storyboarding is really cool. Thank you. That's fall 23. We've been working on it. And in fact, we got all the samples in this week and just set the showroom up because we've got market coming up. Oh, my market. Wow. I haven't been to that in forever. Don't say I miss it. Um, <laughs> it's always just chaos. Um, however, you know, I did like, I really did like when we could see like our people in person and put faces to it. It just was a whole ordeal. And if you have like a booth there, you have to be there much longer. I could go in and out. <laughs> yeah. No, so we have, we'll have market appointments in our showroom at Brant Park. And then we go to Coterie for a week too. So oh, nice. it's, it's like seeing a lot of old friends, a lot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Oh, I love it. Um, well, I'm so happy you're here. And I want to do a quick check-in that we do with all of our guests. If you could, in one word, describe how you're feeling about the business in this moment. So not this week, but like right now, what would you say that one word is? Optimistic. I love it. Why optimistic? Um, you know, just given what's going on in the economy right now, and I'm knocking on wood when I say this, um, we're still doing extremely well. And it makes me feel good about not just our business, but a lot in general, because I feel like if people are still buying happy things that make them happy, um, that means there's still a lot of optimism out there too. Yes. Come on. Blessings. You know, <laughs> it's so interesting. I love, um, are you familiar with Audie Cornish? She's like an NPR journalist. Um, so I love her and she did this really good interview with Kara Swisher on pivot and she made a good point about what's happening in the economy right now. And as someone that has covered many economic crises <laughs> in her career, she's just like, we need to all take a step back because what's happening in tech is not indicative of what's happening in the rest of the world. <laughs> she's right. like, it is a piece of it, but I, she's like a lot of their missteps that they made was like over hiring and stuff. So it's creating a frenzy amongst everyone else. But like, I'm hearing a lot of like your experience with a lot of businesses that are like, no consumers are still. So it's just this weird bubble with tech. Um, so for those listening, like not, to, of course, plan, you know, have scenario planning, but like, I think that we're kind of missing the mark a little bit because tech is taking up so much space in the media right now. Yes, it is. I, I totally agree. We're, and we, we are still acting conservatively, like all yeah. the things that we want to have in 2023, we're kind of taking those off and, and just doing the things that we need to have to plan our business. Um, but that's just being smart, you know, yeah, you, that's business your home too. Um, so, you know, I feel, I feel like we're as prepared as we can be for whatever comes down the road. Well, you've been in the business world for, you know, years and you've seen a lot of ups and downs and, you know, I'm hearing this a lot, like, you know, being more conservative, like that's just smart. But the tough thing is like in the last couple of years, especially in the startups and tech and things like that. Um, and actually I wouldn't even say just them is like, you see very gluttonous behavior, people just like spending money to spend it in businesses. And then when we get to scenarios like this, then everyone's like cutting things that are actually really important. Yeah. So from your experience and for the, the audience listening in, 
you know, how can we be smarter moving forward? Because I feel like this is very cyclical. Like every 10 years, it feels like we get back in the cycle of, okay, we were conservative and then things broke, you know, things felt like really nice. And then we just started spending and hiring a hundred thousand people that we didn't need. <laughs> and then now we have to lay everyone off and those are people's livelihoods. So what would you say about like being smart moving forward? So like, yeah, invest in opportunities, but also don't be an asshole. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think you're totally right. And I think it's very fluid and nobody knows what's going to happen, but I think it is being smart, but n still being willing to take risks in what you're doing because it's still important to have you know that new thing or if, if it's something you really believe in you should still invest in it and and yeah. believe in it um you know i think instead of hiring 100 new people start off small and hire 20 new people and just just take it and so that you can be nimble so you mm. don't find yourself laying people off um yeah. we're lucky enough where we're still pretty small and I really felt that way when we owned Kate Spade, that we could still be pretty nimble, um, even though it grew into a huge company, it was still a medium-sized company when we sold it. So we were still able to kind of shift things around very quickly and easily if we needed to. And, you know, at, at Francis Valentine, it is very much that way. We're, you know, we're a team of like 21 people and uh, not, not counting our retail staff, but, um, we can act on things pretty quickly. So, you know, I, th I think that really helps. Just I love keeping that. an eye on everything that's going on. I love that. So actually, before we even get into Friends Valentine, I wanna take a step back to and just give the audience a little bit of context as to what you were doing. You, you kind of hinted at it um, oh, before okay. this. Um, <laughs> so yeah, what were you all about? What were you doing before you be started this business, before you became an entrepreneur? You've been in fashion for years now. Yes, I have. So I, I'm a very unlikely person to be in the fashion business. I grew up the youngest of four daughters on a cattle farm in Kansas. Wow. Um, my mother is a fashion illustrator and did, you know, she worked for, she worked really four different fashion companies um, in Wichita and would, you know, draw illustrations for them for their, the ad in the Sunday paper kind of thing. So, um, but cool. she took a subscription to Women's Wear Daily every day, which, you know, comes every single day. And I, it was always around me and I always saw it. And I loved, I loved fashion. It was kind of the opposite of where I grew up because um, it was a lot of just jeans and overalls and, you know, there wasn't much dressing up there. Um, but I met Katie Brosnahan at the University of Kansas when we were 18 years old. We became best friends. Um, after graduation, we were supposed to go to Europe for our senior trip together. And I had just enough money saved up to either move to New York or go to Europe with Katie. And I said, Katie, you gotta go by yourself because I have to move to New York. It's just where I wanna be. So cut two, she came back and called me from the airport and said, I have $5 left. And I said, get in a cab, come to the apartment. You can stay with me. It will save up enough money to you know, get a trip to back to Arizona. And she ended up staying and we both worked in the fashion business and, you know, had one of my first jobs was uh, I worked for a company called JG Hook in there. It was, it's an old preppy company. Um, I worked there for a couple of years in their public relations area. And then I got this great job at a company called Gerbeau. It was Gerbeau jeans. They're French jeans. Very cool in the 80s. Um, and I had such a dream job. I traveled all over the world with them and all over the United States. So I got to see a lot in my twenties. Um, and then Katie and Andy called me one night and said, okay, we know what business you and Katie are gonna have. 
we're going to start a handbag company. So I came back to New York. Um, we had an, a fourth partner named Pamela Bell, and the four of us started Kate Spade out of their apartment. And yeah, so for those listening, Katie is Kate Spade. <laughs> Katie is Kate Spade, um, a.k.a. Katie Brosnahan. Um, but uh, we so we started it out of our apartment. We went to trade shows and sold it. And Barney's picked us up and Sharavari, which was a really cool small chain in New York City, picked us up had all designer things. Um, and it was one of those sort of dream come true scenarios. You know, we worked 24 seven. Um, we were very scrappy. We didn't pay for anything that, you know, we couldn't afford. Um, and we eventually got an office space and Katie was all nervous. She was like, we can't spend a thousand dollars a month on an apartment, on an office. But Pamela and I came up with the money and we, you know, it just grew and grew and grew every single year, but it was a lot of blood, sweat, and tears, and a, you know, a lot of love into that company. It was really great, but all of us worked really hard those first few years. We never took salaries, and we were broke the whole time. But you know, best investment I ever made. <laughs> love this, and so you know, we hear this a lot. You know, in these stories, the beginning, you're not taking a salary, anything like that. And I think for some folks, they're like, wait, how do you, how did you live? How did you pay rent? How did you, so what did that look like for you all? Because I think when we say salary, it's like, we're not taking market salary, but there's something that has to come to us so we can eat, yeah. we can do those. So what did that look like for you all? Especially if you had four people that you had to feed. Yeah. So, well, luckily Pamela was married and, you know, had her husband who had a career. Um, so hers was a tad bit easier, but for, and, and Andy Spade was still working in advertising. Um, so it was Katie and Pamela and I, and so I was really the only one who was sort of the hardship as far as the money goes. I mean, we were all still pretty young, so you don't have a ton of extra money back then, yeah. but I had, because I had worked for several other companies before I had a 401k, I cashed that in. Um, you know, I, I was just very frugal with how I lived. Um, you know, it was like, you learn to love a slice of pizza every night for dinner. You love to eat ramen all the time. And, and it just, that's the way you have to be. We also, none of us really had any responsibilities. We didn't have children yet. And so there wasn't anybody else to take care of. It was just, if, if I lost my apartment, I would go live with Katie and Andy, you know, it's just, it was one of those things. And I, I wasn't so worried about it. I also, um, you know, we each took turns Friday nights paying our manufacturers for the bags and we pick them up on Friday night and take them back to the apartment. And so we take turns and I would have to go take money out of my credit cards to pay for it. Luckily, the company was a success. And after I think three years, we all took a nominal salary. So I could at least pay my rent and, you know, have dinner. <laughs> but, yep. uh, you know, it took a couple of years. So I, I had enough savings to be able to do that. Um, during that time. It wasn't very much, but again. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm so happy you gave that context because so often when we, we talk about, you know, companies and when they get founded, there's always a story like associated with the funding, right? The funding piece of it. But what's usually missed is like most companies don't get funding in the beginning. Like the yeah. funding is from the founders, like what you just said, cashing out your 401k, credit cards, like there's yeah. this graph from like 2015, but I'm sure it's still very much, you know, on par where it showed where the different funding vehicles come from. And the number one for funding a startup in the beginning is personal savings, checkings, you know, credit cards. It was exponentially higher than VC, angel, 
crowdfunding, all of that stuff. And mm. that's what's kind of missed because it's not sexy to say, hey, it took three years for us to even start paying ourselves. It took, you know, we had to go off of our savings. And now you see this with founders and a lot of the founders in our community, we see that maybe they still have their full-time job for the first year or two. And they're doing this on the side. So I'd love that you gave that context. So I want to come back to Kate Spade and then Frances Valentine as like case studies later. But I want to dive into like, what is Frances Valentine and what problem is it solving? So Frances Valentine, it's, it's a company we created and we took, I'll tell you about the name because everybody always asks me about it. Um, we had a whole list of names that we loved. Most of them had to do with flowers, but um, Frances and Valentine were two names on the list. And we were thinking about what do we want this to be? And we wanted it to be this aspirational woman. So we used Francis and Valentine, we put them together. They were, they happened to be uh, names in Katie's family, as, of Katie's family members. Um, Francis on her father's side and Valentine on her mother's side. And we wanted it to be this aspirational woman who is that favorite aunt you have, the gracious, funny, wonderful, best dressed person who you really look up to and you love to go visit your best friend who makes you laugh harder than anybody else. And that's who Frances Valentine is. And when it came to her wardrobe choices, it was the coolest bag, you know, the, the best shoes. And Katie really loved accessories. It was her passion. She loved making handbags. She loved making shoes. I do too, but I also loved apparel and uh, jewelry. So um, we started the company with handbags and shoes and then added apparel, uh, we added two apparel pieces um, after we lost Katie. And it was more sort of a tribute to her because there were two of her favorite things that she loved that we had found at vintage shops. Um, one was an embroidered caftan and the other was an embroidered sweater. And we made those, they sold out within two weeks. We made them again, they sold out again. Wow. And then our customers started asking us for all the pieces that we were styling in our ad campaigns. And they were happened to be my vintage pieces. So um, it's really how we got started in that sort of new category of apparel. And one of the things that we always say is where what makes you happy? Because I am a firm believer in when you wake up in the morning, you get to decide how you're gonna feel that day. And part of that, a big part of that is what you're wearing. If you're wearing all black, you might just be in that kind of mood. But if you throw on something that's a bright pink something or a layering a jacket and you get, you know, a million compliments, it just makes your day. It makes you feel yep. so good. And just yeah. staring at yourself or even seeing that thing hanging in your closet. And I open my closet sometimes and I see this one piece. I might not wear it very often, but it just makes me smile. And so that's really what the company ethos is. It is... Mm giving people those things so that they have confidence in their own personal style. I love this. This resonates so much because, you know, my first two companies were in fashion. And I remember when I went to college, I just kept remembering what my grandmother told me. Because in high school, I started getting really into styling myself. I would go to thrift stores and I just felt like I'm my canvas. I don't want, like, I never felt good going to the mall because I'm like, I don't want to wear what everyone else is wearing. It doesn't feel nice. Um, but even when I got to college, like I could have pulled an all-nighter, but I always dressed the way I wanted to feel. People are yeah. like, how did you get dressed? And I'm like, I haven't slept, but like, I already feel crappy because I didn't sleep. I don't want to like look at myself and be like, yeah, this is, this is, you're just going to be crap today, you know? So that really resonates a lot with me. So, you know, 
Frances Valentine was, you know, you guys spin it off from Kate Spade. Let's go go back. So what so you got Kate Spade to a certain point. Everyone's very familiar with Kate Spade, yeah. probably has a bag, an accessory, something. Um, what was the point when you all were growing Kate Spade that you said we're going to spin this off? Because, you know, you all launched this in 2016, so not that long ago. Um, but what was that inflection point to say this is necessary and we want this to be kind of another uh, under the family, right? Right. So it, it's not under the family because okay. they're very separate businesses. Um, okay. We sold Kate Spade in 2006 to Neiman Marcus and then they sold it to Liz Claiborne and it's now become, you know, part of Tapestry, which owns you know several other brands. But, you know, it was at a point we'd been doing it for 13 years and we loved it. It was like our first child. But in that time, we'd all gotten married we'd all had children. I just had my third child, you know, the day we closed on our deal, I think with Neiman's. Wow. Um, and we just felt like, um, you know, we are really good at starting companies and coming up with the brand and the, all the products. It was so much fun and we loved it, but it got to a certain point where it was getting really big and our lives had become a lot more full um, with our spouses and our children and, and, you know, all of that, that we felt like, you know, maybe it was time to let the, you know, other people come in and manage the business and um, sell the company. And, you know, had, if we had been able to keep part of it, we probably would have, but it was sort of, you sell it or you don't. And yeah. so Neiman's bought it from us at that time. And, you know, it's funny what you think, how you think you're going to feel. We walked out of there and I was like, yeah, never have to work again but it's not a matter <laughs> of not having to you really miss it I remember dropping my kids off at school that September and I walked out of the front door of the school I had never not worked a day in my life and I didn't know where to go I didn't know what to do with myself and I remember I would put on a Walkman it was called at that time and I would try to eat time up in my day. So I would run walk to Katie's house. I live in the West Village. She lives on the Upper East Side. It took at least an hour to get up there. Yeah, that's deep. <laughs> Go to the park for a couple of hours. I'd, then I'd come back home, but it ate up about five hours of my day. And then I, I really had to figure out what I was going to do. So I, you know, I took up cooking class. I took tennis up. I, I started doing things. I volunteered at the school and then all of a sudden I'm really busy. But, um, you know, you think that, after it's it's every single day and you have to make all these decisions and you're so busy you think oh I just you know I can't wait for it to end but when it ends it really ends and you miss it so much it, and it's it was hard because it was like our first child and just it went off to college and it never came back you know and um, wow. so it, it's a hard thing to give up your business um, and I think we missed it for a really long time um, but I'm, you know, it's been in good hands, obviously they're doing extremely well. Um, so that's really good. Um, during that time that we had off, you know, we were able to be consumers of other designers and other products. So that, that was kind of nice to be able to go shopping. And we were out to dinner, I think it was like 2013 or 2014, um, the six of us and, um, or the eight of us. And um, we were talking about don't you miss it? And should we get back into it? And should we, cause we really missed designing and creating things. So we started talking about it. And in 2014, 
we uh, trademarked the name and like did did everything we needed to do. We got this office space in 2014 and we launched it. We had the luxury of time because we actually, again, funded it ourselves. Um, and we wanted to kind of take our time building the business. And we launched it in 2016. And it was um, Katie, Andy, and myself. And um, it was really fun. I was so happy to be back at doing it because it's not only just the creating part of it, um, of products that you love, but it's also, you miss the social interaction with being around people at work. Um, I think COVID taught all of us that, but, um, you know, having to work at home all the time, you can, you can get a little bit lonely, I think. Oh yeah, absolutely. So I love this. You all had sold the the business in you know, 2006 and then you had lives now. And I think that's the, the one thing with, you know, all this amazing, what's the word, all this amazing opportunity that has opened up for women and working and all that. And I think sometimes there is a guilt when we're like, I want to focus on family right now because it's like, well, now I have all these rights to do whatever. And it's like, it's okay to like take a beat and do these things. So I love that. And you launched this business in 2016. Now it's grown substantially. Um, it's profitable, which is very, very hard in fashion because it's capital intensive. And you have, I mean, you have six locations, you have retail locations, you have team members, all of those things. Before we even get into Francis Valentine, what do you feel you learned from Kate Spade? Because it sounds like you all were very scrappy. The company is doing extraordinarily well under you all, but not now under its new owners. Um, what do you feel you learned or you did really well in Kate Spade that you took to Francis Valentine that has been critical to your growth? Um, there, there are a couple of things, but I'll just focus on the main ones that I think will be helpful to people. I think it's don't spend any money unless it's on product development that you mm. Spend like be as scrappy as you can. If you don't have to buy desks for your office and you can get some hand me downs from the company that's going out of business down the street, or because that's what's what we did, we found desks outside and they didn't match at first, but it didn't really matter. Um, it, just stay in your apartment until you are busting at the seams. Um, always investigate you know, other ways to ship items to people for the, the most cost efficient way. Just be as scrappy as you can in every way. I am um, not a very good sketcher, but I used to sketch our line sheets at Kate Spade because we didn't want to pay an artist to do it for us. And we just, we did everything ourselves. Um, so yeah. I think, and it's also, it's a good way to learn about your business. If you have to learn how to do everything, you know how to do everything. So it's really great. And you know what skills once you hire somebody, they will need to do that job. Um, and I, but I, and I'm, we're still very scrappy today at, at Francis Valentine. Um, yeah. You know, all the team here wears five hats. Uh, we don't overhire ever. And until somebody's just sort of like, ah, I really can't. <laughs> No, then we finally hire another person to, to pitch in. Um, I think um, something I learned from Katie Spade um, that uh, was critical for Frances Valentine, especially after we lost her, um, was learning to be a good editor. Um, I really relied on her so much to once the line was finished and once um, you know everything was here, I loved every single piece and I couldn't edit them. I couldn't pull out the things that, you know, 
maybe didn't weren't going to do the most volume. And Katie would come in and pick out pieces and she would just make the story. And I learned how to do that from her. And it was really, um, really helpful to me because, you know, once you've worked on something and worked so hard on it to have somebody come in and say, we don't need that and just take it out. Um, she could really um, like sort of take herself out of the equation and do it. And um, so I, I learned a lot from her on that I score. That. It's so interesting because in any company, she's saying this in the context of fashion and making the story for the line, but I think this is in any any business. So one of the things you'll hear in the startup space is like killing your babies. You know, you have to kill your babies. And it's really hard because for you, everything about your baby is important. And, you know, it's like when a new parent is like, oh my God, my kid just spit up and they think it's the most fabulous thing in the world. And everyone else is like, that's gross. You know? <laughs> and so it's like, it, everything is so, it's so touchy for us because we're so connected. So what helped you? I know you said that, you know, Katie Spade really helped you to become that better editor, but what do you think helped you? What, what helps you get to being a good editor? Like, what are those things to take the emotion out of it and say, actually, this is the best thing that's going to serve our audience, our customers, how for the people listening, because I think this is applies to any sector when you're building a business, how can they become a better editor? So I think less is more just going in with that mantra. If you have, you know, eight bags for me, eight handbags that you created for this one group, this one story, it should be honed down to five or less. And it's really hard to do, but look at the data that you have the best-selling bag last year, especially if you sold out of them, there's probably a desire to have more of those. So keep that same silhouette in recolor it or restyle, you know, use a different fabrication for it and then bring in new pieces. So maybe keep three of the old and bring in two brand new styles to introduce because people do want newness, but they also want consistency. So it gives you both and you can speak to both when you're selling them. So newness, and this is specifically for the fashion folks that are building. This is a, like chicken and the egg. Um, where you know, it could work across shoes, handbags, mm -hmm. apparel, because we have apparel groupings and, you know, I'll get 10 things in and I've got to take it down to four. And it's hard. right. Right. How are you iterating? Cause the, the top thing that we hear from founders on this podcast is their ability to listen to their customers. So I think that's a really critical part of the editing process. To your point, you said you all looked at your data. In the early stages, it's really hard to do that because you don't have anything to go off of. You just have to go off of your gut, what you think is going to work, and then experiment from there. But for the folks now that are like, okay, to edit, to tell this story, and maybe it's features on an app because the Pareto principle says there's 20% of what you offer that like is going to produce 80% of your results. I'm sure that's probably in Francis Valentine as well. But when they're looking at really editing down and then looking at how do we go into new newness, new features, new silhouettes, how can they stay really focused on what their customer needs? And maybe it would be helpful is how are you all listening to your customer? So then you're building and, you know, creating the products that they really want. I mean, you all are growing right now in a time that everyone's freaking out. So you're doing something right. Yeah. Well, it's, I'll tell you, it is exactly what you said. It's being in touch with your customer. I try to go to the stores as often as I can and hang out in the stores because 
customers come up and tell you exactly what they want or what you didn't have in the line that they want. Um, I go to trunk shows. I come back with a whole list of stuff that people are asking for or some tweaks to the things that we already do that would be really beneficial to them. Um, one of the things that you know came out of those are we extended our sizes a couple of years ago because we had so many customers asking for extended sizes. So we are from, we're going to change it this year to go even lower, but we're, we're starting at a zero, zero. We used to start at two. And then we started at zero. Now we're going to start at zero, zero, because we have a lot of petite customers and yeah. we go up to three XL. And to have that range is really beneficial to people because they're, you know, everybody comes in different shapes and sizes. And um, so there's, there's just so much information I get from talking to people. Um, we also were able to implement reviews a few years ago on, for our e-commerce site. So we get a ton of information um, that way. And then I, of course, get people DMing me on Instagram all the time. And they, they just are asking me, where, where can I get that? Or where, where, when are you guys going to make this kind of thing? So yeah. it's, it's a lot of information, but it's very personal too. And what I love about this, and to your point, and a lot of the founders we hear around their customer listening, it's not scalable. It's, and it's not supposed to be like, I like the word you use. It's very personal, like direct DMs, right? Like, no, you're not going to scale it out, right? You know, yeah, surveys can be great. Reviews can be great. I think those are compliments to those in-person conversations because they don't have nuance. You can't like, I will never forget with customers, you know, in my last, you know, business that was in fashion. And when they're like, oh, I really want, um, more of a like hard denim, right? Cause we were in the denim space. And then right. I'm like, huh, tell me what you mean, 45 year old man. What does hard denim mean to you? Cause when I'm thinking of hard, I'm thinking of raw, which is really like rigid yeah. and not yeah. comfortable. And like, it's a certain type of customer. And I'm like, I don't think that's your thing. And what they really meant was I need something more sturdy. I want softness, I want to stretch, but I don't want it to feel like it's elastic that I'm wearing like my mom's pants, right? right? And so that nuance we could not get by just sending out a simple survey. It was conversations in our showroom constantly when we were on the road asking people like what you just said. So for founders that are listening in, I think sometimes they're like, okay, let's send out a survey. And I'm like, that's not enough. Like going out there and really being on the ground is super essential. Absolutely. And it's helpful if you have a wholesale business to listen to the buyers because they yes. are, they might be from the South. They might be from the East. They might be from the West. They're going to come at you with all this information and you've got yeah. to it. You don't have to use all of the information, but it, listening to it is really because they know their customers better than anybody. I love that point. Cause even with our, our founder community, how people identify is really interesting by region. So like on the coast, you hear founder, we're founders. But in the South and like the mountain regions, people say owner, I'm the owner of it. Like it's a different thing. So we had to realize, oh, like even when we're doing, you know, our language and our messaging, it's being really, um, really particular about that because we're like, we don't want to just attract people from New York, right? Like in, you know, LA. So I love that, that you mentioned like really looking at the nuances. So I want to get into like, okay, growing Francis Valentine. I know everyone's like, okay, Kate Spade. And I'm like, this is fresh. And I'm sure you took a lot of things from Kate Spade into this. So it's going to give people so much perspective on how they can grow. So you all which is incredible. I'm still focused on the fact that you all are profitable, which is 
amazing. That is very rare of fashion yeah. businesses in such a yeah. short period of time. <laughs> Recently. <laughs> Which is congrats. That's amazing. So let's start with where did you all get the initial capital from for this business? Because you did raise a little bit, but you also, it seems like you all, I mean, you had an exit. So I'm guessing you all put some skin in the game yourselves because we, Kate Spade's a pretty big company now. So yeah, where did exactly. that capital initially come from? So we, the three founders put capital in at the beginning, built out the showroom, you know, the, all the samples and first production rounds, et cetera. And then um, in 2018, at the end of 2018, um, I was pretty much at the helm solo and um, we were at a crossroads. What are we going to do? It, the team and I, um, and we decided there was not a choice. We had to move forward and we were going to move forward and make this company go. So um, I had to go out and do a raise. Um, and basically I went to friends and family and um raised i'm trying to think of how much we raised in about two and a half million dollars um and then we've done a couple more since then over over time um just because as you grow and you know other founders already know this and entrepreneurs already know this but as you grow you think oh well i'll be profitable by then and that'll be great and i just pay for itself but it doesn't because you're now producing twice or three times or four times as much um in advance and you don't have cash flow to deal with that for 60 or 90 days. So you definitely need some financing somewhere along the line, whether it is, you know, equity capital or, or friends and family putting money in, um, or, you know, getting some kind of line of credit somewhere. Um, I, you know, at Kate Spade, we, um, you know, we started off on our own. We could not get a line of credit to save our lives at that point from any bank. It was impossible. Yeah. And um, it took us years to do it. And finally, when we were doing well, you know, they all come calling and they're of like, course, well, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, we actually ended up having a really good relationship with what was called Republic Bank then, um, and uh, was bought by HSBC, um, who dealt with fashion companies at the time. So, and I, I believe they still do. I think HSBC HSBC still has a whole group that uh, deals with fashion. But um, it, it's nice to, as you grow, and they love to see your growth trajectory, especially if you're, you know, profitable and not losing a ton of money and can control your expenses. Um, it's much easier to find financing than it is yeah. money hand over fist. It's like the whole thing, which is, can be really annoying when you're starting is like cash creates cash. Like even the way they distributed PPP loans was off of how much cash you had in the bank. Right. So you had so many founders, like I didn't get anything from PPP because I'm like, they're basing it off of how much cash you have. Um, mm -hmm. So that time, I really love this because it gives context for people. You know, you all funded it initially for Francis Valentine how long did it take until you did the friends and family round and then any alternative forms of financing? Like what was that timeline? So people have perspective. Cause I think sometimes we think, Oh, I just got money right out the gate. Like yeah. sometimes they don't know what that timeline looks like. And it's like, that's actually not realistic. Yeah. So, you know, it was about every two years. So 2018, 2020, and then 2022. Got it. Different races. Got it. So then let's go into, I love this, the, how you started talking about the wholesale piece. So this business model is based off of the retail wholesale and I'm guessing e-commerce. And so for the wholesale side of things, you had mentioned, 
you know, it's really important to be, you know, talking to the buyers and all of that. But something you hear, like I remember a case study on Outdoor Voices, and she was saying, hey, you know, I think it was Saks or Neiman wanted to carry her stuff. And they're like, we need you to fulfill this much quantity, you know, for this order. And you, in order to do that, you need the money to get it manufactured. So how did you all break into the wholesale game? Like, you know, the tough thing in this case is that you all came from Kate Spade, so you have receipts to say, hey, we have this new line. But one of the hardest things, and I remember in my last company, we didn't, people didn't know us, and the first brand we were able to get in denim was Seven for All Mankind, and we could go to other brands and then say, hey, Seven for All Mankind's on, you know. So for founders that are trying to break into wholesale partnerships and get that, you know, buy-in from them to take a risk, what would you advise them to do? Because you all did it for Kate Spade and you did it, you're doing it for Francis Valentine. Right, right. So our Kate, the two models of both of those companies are very different. It's just because of the timing of each of those. Mm. E-commerce wasn't a big thing at Kate yep. Spade uh, back then. In fact, we, it was a woman in the corner doing it all by herself. Wow. And we were like, oh, hi, you know. <laughs> our <laughs> it's all retail. Our business was really wholesale and retail at Kate Spade. Um, cut to you know, Francis Valentine, when we started this, I thought, you know, thinking as you do, when you think you're right about everything, I thought, oh, we're going to do 50% e-commerce and 50% wholesale. And that's how we're going to do this. Well, you don't get to choose really, uh, you know, right out of the gate. Most of our business was e-commerce business. We just had, you know, a lot of people coming to us directly, which was great and no complaints. It was just a sort of different model than I was used to. And I, I had to learn a lot. Um, I'm st I still learn a lot about it all the time, um, but um, as far as the wholesale goes, so we were only selling handbags and shoes at that time, and it was mostly boutiques um, who we were selling to, so those aren't huge orders, they're pretty easy, um, cash flow was pretty good on those because they have 30 days um, on each of those, so that part was manageable for us just to deal with regular cash flow on the wholesale side. Um, and it is pretty much the same right now. We have, um, we just started selling our apparel last year for the very first time wholesale. So it's a new business for us, a new category for us to add in, um, which has exploded. So this is going to become more of an issue for us as, as time goes on. But um, the majors who are carrying us are Neiman's and Saks um, as far as the apparel goes. And it's just drop ship right now. So yeah, we, you know, that's easy because they pay as they, as they sell things. Um, and it's not one big bulk of something of inventory. So as we move forward with businesses, we are going to have to figure out how to finance that production. And it's a really good question because it's hard. I know there are, you know, I would say either bank loans are probably the best thing if you want to give a personal guarantee. Um, and they're, the interest rates are much better than anywhere else. And if you have a really good relationship with your bank, it's I would recommend it. It's the best way to go. Um, there are factors out there, especially for fashion folks. Um, you know, the interest rates there are a little bit higher, but they basically take control of your accounts receivable. The nice thing is, is you don't have to make those calls to collect money anymore because they will do it for you. Um, and they'll loan against your inventory. So there, there are, you know, several options out there. There's also, um, you know, if you're on the Shopify platform um, and you're doing a good amount of business, Shopify lo makes loans as well. 
um, but they're very expensive interest-wise. Um, so there, there are different options out there. Um, if you don't have to borrow, don't. But if you do have to, I would say, you know, banks first, factors, and then go to the other options that are available to you. Just want to try and get as low an interest as possible, obviously. Possible. I love this. And so now that we're looking, we, we've had the financing side for wholesale. Now, when it comes to founders that want to get into wholesale, like I want to get, you know, my, you know, my brand in this retail location, what advice would you have for smaller brands that are like, wow, they won't give me the time of day. What approach do you think? Because I feel like it's finagling. It is a lot of like, it's like dating. It really is. It's like, I'm going to say this or whatever it is. So what advice would you say? Because it actually, I'm surprised that you all are doing drop shipping for how well you're doing. Like, that's amazing. So you don't yeah. have to come up with all of that. So in terms of building those relationships. Um, so it's soul crushing to, it, it is like dating. You keep knocking on the door and ask, do you want to go out with me? And they just don't answer you. So that can be tough. Um, I think it's always hard, but just to the prospective buyers you want um, and then just keep following up on the phone. And I know people don't use phones anymore, but it's the best way to get in touch with people because they all yep. answer the phone in their store. Um, so I think that's a really good way. It just takes a lot of tenacity to keep going because it, uh, it, it can be soul crushing at times. You just got to keep going. Um, and then, you know, another route, which I think is a really easy but more expensive route is doing, you know, a trade show. They're all over the United States. The, the biggest one that we do is Coterie here in New York at the Javits Center. Yep. And the spaces are expensive, but, um, you know, you can try to negotiate or, or um, share, a, share a booth with someone if your line's kind of small. And but there's tons of buyers from all over the United States who come into that. You know, there are ones in Dallas, there's Miami, there's Atlanta, there's California and Los Angeles. They're, you know, they're really all over the place. And if you happen to live in New York, great coteries right there, but, and there are other trade shows as well that are, can be more specific to people. Um, but if you happen to be in Atlanta, do the Atlanta show. Yeah. Um, I love it. I just remember at Kate's Bait, it was really expensive for us. It was really hard. We're like, oh, should we spend the money on that? But it is pretty worth it. Yeah. Yeah. So you all have wholesale and you also have your retail locations and it's really hard to have a profit off of <laughs> retail. And so I remember even when I was building my last company that was primarily e-commerce, but we had started with showrooms first and it was such great R&D. We got to understand what our customers needed. I remember at the time people were like, retail's dead. It's going to be all clicks and whatever. And it was so funny because we saw all of our you know, other players in the space that started opening showrooms like maybe a couple years after us because they realized it's really expensive to acquire customers online. It is really expensive. It is worse today. It's Absolutely. It's really expensive. It's so expensive. And I believe that there's so many cool things you can do from an experience perspective with the retail location. But what advice would you have for founders that are like, that would be amazing to have a space, but again, very expensive. Like, how could they get some skin in the game? Because I do believe like that in person, you convert higher, your average order value is usually higher, and you tend to have a higher lifetime value at that customer because they are able to connect your brand to human, like someone that's human. 
Mm -hmm. Well, you know, we've been lucky with that. We have six stores now and we have two to three more we're opening in 2023. Um, we have been really lucky in the, the leases we go after. And part of it's part of our strategy. We look at a market and it's mostly based on, you know, where we're doing the most business on e-commerce. So if we know, say, Dallas is a good market for us, I've been looking in Dallas for three years. I keep looking all the time. And when a space comes up that fits our, you know, the price point we're looking for, it's got the demographic and the people shopping in that area. Um, and we can make a deal with them. And they're nice landlords. They have to be nice landlords because, um, you know, you're basically living there. Um, then we make a deal. And that's the way it's been with every single store we've opened. We have a relationship with the landlord and we don't overpay on rent ever. Um, and we're, we've been patient and waited out to get the right deal. Um, yeah. So I think, and I think it's being strong in negotiating. Now's a really good time to find a retail space if you've got the money to put down, because you've got to put down, you know, first and last month's rent and, you know, that the whole deposit and all that stuff. Um, but everything's negotiable on leases. So absolutely sure that you negotiate and don't just jump and take it and say, yes, yes, yes. Even if you want it, because I get, I get that way. I just want to take it and say, well, yeah, great. But you really have to think about how all of those things are going to affect you in the long term. Um, you know, the, the increase in charges every year, what's that going to mean in three years? Um, but we also build our stores out um, very frugally. I'm sounding like such a cheapskate, but I'm really not. Um, I'm talking about. You know what? The, I mean, your company is doing really well. I think there's something to this. <laughs> I think there's something but, to being frugal. You know, we have a love of vintage, and part of that are antique furnishings, too. So we might pick a really, you know, we might spend money on one really great piece in our stores, but all the other pieces in there didn't cost us so much. Um, and, yeah. you know, a lot of things I use also from. Home, from our homes, that kind of thing. Um, but we build them out and our, our stores are very profitable very quickly. I love this. This reminds me of in my last company with our showrooms, there, we would have, there was one on Michigan Avenue in Chicago because that's where we were based. And we never thought we would be able to get a space affordable in there. Like the anchor, the anchor store is Nordstrom. There was a lot of fancy shops in there. And there was on the third floor a, a space and we were able to negotiate it because a problem with a lot of, especially like malls, this is more of a modern mall, but they had a lot of empty spaces and that looks really bad for them. So they were willing to let us do more of a pop-up style. So like for a few months, because they're like, we'd rather have you in here. And to your point about being scrappy and frugal, we had our friends come help us like build it out. You know, we bartered with people that were like interior designers and they were like, okay, here's how you can make this flow the way you want. Here are the materials to go get it. And we did not spend that much money. So I love that, you know, I think sometimes we think we need, you know, to look like freaking Neiman Marcus, you know, where it's like, you can do it in your way, but not with that price tag. So right. I cool. love that you broke that down. So then you know, Francis Valentine, I mean, it hasn't been around that long. You all are profitable. It is growing in a time where people are freaked out. So there's something to this. What do you all feel? And you've already talked about being frugal, but what else do you feel that this brand has done better than any other brand in this space that has been a catalyst for your growth? I think we've been true to our brand. Um, we, 
you know, it, it is where, what makes you happy. They, they're inspirational pieces. They're real. And we could do a black piece, but it might have like really cool embroidery on it. It's gotta be unique and different and, and fun and something that just makes you light up when you, when you see it. Um, I think it's product, product, product. I think that makes all the difference in the world. Um, what follows that is our creative. We have an amazing creative team and they tell the Francis Valentine story more beautifully than anybody else ever could. Um, you know, we, we um, do use a lot of different marketing channels. Um, all of the, you know, the digital paid channels. Um, we have done billboards, ads in local uh, areas where we have a store opening. Um, we spend money on catalogs, which I thought were dead. And honestly, oh, catalogs are big. And our team came to me, I guess it was 20, 2019 and said, we ought to do a catalog. And they've been talking about it for a year. And I, I kept saying, no, no, that's old fashioned. Nobody does this anymore. But oh my God, I'm so glad I said yes, because our catalog, our first catalog dropped during COVID when everybody was home. Wow. All of a sudden, you know, we had all these new customers because of it. Um, I don't know if it's the case today still um, to drop your first catalog and have that great kind of response, but it, it was just so sort of like, you know, fortuitous for us at that time. Yeah. Um, we, we drop a couple catalogs every year and it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a really good business, but our, our creative tells the story of the brand in each of those and they do it beautifully. And I think um, our creative really lends itself well to a paper catalog. So it's nice. And I, I think it's that. answer your question is product, 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 and then having all of your team be brand ambassadors and really protect the brand. I love that. In my last company, to your point around like uh, you weren't the sketch person, I am not a uh, graphic designer, and I was the one that created our catalog. Sent it out. We wanted to test it in like really nice suburbs where some of our customers were. Um, and that was, it was a fun thing because people, I think like opening mail now because email, it's like, oh my God, get out of my inbox. So what do you feel is the biggest mistake you've made while building this company so far? Cause I know there's lots, um, that you feel has become your best lesson so far as a leader or one of your best lessons. Mm, that's a really good question. I haven't thought much about that. Um, um, you know, I think it's trying to jump into new categories too fast without dipping your toes in first. And we added a few home pieces last year that um, one was a beach umbrella. They're beautiful. They're amazing. And a beach chair. And we're like, this will be great. We can have, we can sell them in the Hamptons and we can sell them here and everybody's going to want one and they're wonderful. And we ordered them. We didn't think about the warehouse costs of storing those. Oh yeah. You know, they're heavy shipping, the shipping costs of shipping them and um, that we might be sitting on them for six months. So that, you know, that's a lesson I learned. Don't just jump into something because you love it so much. And you think, oh, everybody's going to love it because they like all of our other products. They're going to love this. And, you know, we sell a lot of other home products and we sell out of them, but those two were sort of outliers and, um, you know, it was a lesson learned. Don't jump into that so fast. Mm -hmm. Just like think of everything about it before you jump into something so big. 
Yeah, I definitely did on my last company. We were like, our customers were like, oh, you do denim? Well, what about shirts? And what about, and I'm like, we haven't even touched the surface with denim yet. And it was such a distraction. And I think you get excited when your customers are excited, but sometimes customers will say stuff. <laughs> they will say a lot of things. And it doesn't mean that your core thing you do, you shouldn't like focus on that. So I love that you brought that up. So what gets you done, you know, the reason we do this and highlight women like you is not just to say, look at all these women, you know, scaling, you know, multi-million dollar, whatever type of businesses, you know, for us, it's about redefining what scale means. Because right now the biggest, you know, conversations we hear is like, you have to be a billion dollars or go home. And it's like, well, not every company needs to be that. So for us, it's about scaling generational impact. It's what can we do with our businesses when they are successful and we're intentionally scaling them? And how can that be impactful for our communities, for the people we care about, our families, things like that. So my question to you is, what does scaling generational impact within this business, what does that look like to you? Um, well, I'll tell you, we look at our customers when we started this, um, let me step back. When we started Kate Spade, it, we were making things for the women we were at that moment in time. We were in our late twenties and, um, you know, we were making bags for young professional women and we happened to have customers who were 15 years old to, you know, 65 years old buying our stuff, which was great. Um, Francis Valentine also the same thing it's probably the most similar thing between the two businesses is we started this to make things for the women we were at the time and so in our early 50s when we started this and um, there were things out there and i still find now when i'm working on design for things we're we're adding more modern things to vintage silhouettes we're adding pockets to stuff and maybe adding a zipper instead of buttons all the way down the back because i love pockets Yes. I do too. I love pockets. I love pockets and everything. Everything needs them. Um, but we started this company under the same ethos, but we're just, we've evolved, I should say. And, um, uh, you know, I, I think that our customers at Francis Valentine are ages 25 to 85. The majority of them are over the age of 40. And I think part of that is because we are over 40 and we are making things that we want during this time in our lives. And mm -hmm. so I believe that is, you know, part of why we have the customer base. We do, you know, she's 45 and up for the most part, but we, we still make things for younger customers. Like we did mini skirts this year and they did really well. And I noticed in the fourth quarter, you know, our surge of customers was 25 to 35. And I was like, okay, I, I guess it's the mini skirts, but I, you know, I don't know. They, I think they're liking what we're doing. So, um, you know, we really um, have something for everyone, but um, it's it's really the woman over 40 who's, who's shopping with us for the most part. Um, and I think it's because of how we're designing things and what, what we're making things for. We don't really do high heels. And it's because I'm not wearing high heels anymore. I will occasionally, but maybe only in my own home for a party. Um, it's just, you know, I'd rather have a kitten heel or something that makes my foot look like I'm wearing a high heel, but it's got a shorter heel and I can walk to work in that heel if I want to, because it's so comfortable. Yes. I am like that where I'm like, I want a heel, but it needs to be thick enough. I do not do stilettos. I am in pain. I won't do it, but I like the elongation of my leg and heels. <laughs> like I, I like wearing heels most places. So, so the long-term impact for you is really about like, how can we create things in this world that make you feel good 
it, the age that you are and you're speaking to the people in your age cohort. I think that's, that's beautiful. There's that authenticity. So based on that long-term impact, what are you all focused on today to keep growing that impact? And then for the folks listening in, how can they support you in growing your impact? Oh, well, that's really nice. Um, so, so today we, we really grew a lot the last three years and last year, our whole theme for the company was build for growth. It's all senior management. Uh, the whole senior management team is women and we work in a collaborative team together. Like we set our goals at the beginning of the year. We meet quarterly, we meet every week and every day, but we meet quarterly to discuss those goals and make sure we're meeting the objectives that we set out for ourselves. Um, last year, our overall theme was build for growth. And we added all of these different things last year. We added NetSuite ERP, which was painful as heck, really painful for 16 months and very expensive, but so worth it um, when it's time to do that. Um, we moved from Shopify to Shopify 2.0, where we had a lot more flexibility for our customers and, and for ourselves on showing how, how we can show product better. Um, also took us a long time, was expensive to do, and, and you know, it took the whole team to work on it, but really worthwhile. Um, we added Jure, which is a wholesale platform so that wholesalers can go in and shop. We hadn't done that before. Um, and we added um, um, True Commerce, um, and that's another wholesale tool. So we did a lot of those type of things last year. There are 20 other ones we did too. This year, our plan is to really simplify things focus on what we do best. And it is creating really good product, offering an edited collection with, with handbags, shoes, jewelry, and apparel, and really focusing on those things that we do best. Um, it, we, yes, without um, you know spending too much or taking too many risks. This year, you know, we've decided not to do that. Um, normally we would be like, okay, let's try this and let's try that because it's, it's fun. And sometimes risks really pay off. But I just feel like in this sort of economic environment, we have to be really, really careful. Um, but, you know, we're opening new stores. Our retail is really, our wholesale is really taken off and it's managing that growth in the right way for us, um, which is, is exciting and a challenge to me at the same time. Yeah. And I love this because it talks, you know, like the incremental, like step-by-step, step, we, we took this risk and then this risk. It's not all at once, right? right. So then based on what you all are focusing on and growing the company and your impact for the folks listening in, how can they, they support you and support the business? Um, follow us on Instagram <laughs> or come visit one of our stores um, because I would, you don't have to come in and buy. That's great if you do, but I just love any feedback from, you know, anybody listening, what, how they think about the brand, you know, what they think about the apparel pieces, the shoes, the bags. Um, I'm really excited for 2023 um, and um, just love to hear, you know, any word from any of the listeners. Thank you so much for listening to Get Shit Done. We hope you got the traction tips you need to grow your company on your own terms. If you want to learn more traction tips like these from badass women entrepreneurs weekly, make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, queen, show us some love by rating and reviewing this podcast. This really helps us reach and serve more women like you in slaying their way to traction. 
And if you're looking for more support on your scaling journey, head on over to shegetsshitdone.com slash join, where you'll become a part of the movement of women entrepreneurs giving 4% the middle finger. Until next time, queen, I'm Alex Batdorf reminding you, you got this. Now go out there and get shit done.